Welcome to Trial Lawyer View, a podcast for and about trial lawyers. We will tell the stories about trial lawyers go to battle every day in courtrooms throughout the United States for injury victims. This is about their stories and their practices. Hello, everyone. I'm Jason Lazarus, your host for Trial Lawyer View. Thank you for tuning in today for another episode. Trial Lawyer View is brought to you by Synergy Settlement Services. In full disclosure, I'm not a professional podcaster. Instead, my day job is Chief Executive Officer of Synergy Settlement Services. Synergy allows trial lawyers to focus on what they do best by handling the difficult issues that arise at settlement, like troublesome lien resolution issues, Medicare secondary payer compliance, government benefit preservation techniques, and complex settlement planning. Joining me today on Trial Law Review is John Blumberg. He's a 40-plus year California trial lawyer practicing with Blumberg Law Offices in Long Beach, California. And uh, he's got a lot of professional designations and accolades in the history, so I'm going to read a little bit uh, to you about John. He is triple board certified as a trial lawyer by the National Board of Trial Advocacy, as a medical malpractice specialist by the American Board of Professional Liability Attorneys, and as a legal malpractice specialist by the State Bar of California, Board of Legal Specialization, and the American Board of Professional Liability Attorneys. He has served on the board of directors of trial organizations, including the American Board of Trial Advocates, ABODA, the American Board of Professional Liability Attorneys and Consumer Attorneys Association of Los Angeles. Mr. Bumberg has published over 40 articles on trial advocacy and law practice and has been actively involved in the training of trial lawyers for over 40 years. His accolades include Martindale Hubble, AV highest possible rating, Southern California Super Lawyers uh, since 2004, uh, Million Dollar Advocates Forum since 2005, Nominee 2005 Trial Lawyer of the Year by Consumer Attorneys Association of Los Angeles and recipient of the President's Recognition Award from the National Board of Trial Advocacy. John earned his BA from Cal State Long Beach and his JD from Western State University College of Law. Uh, I was incredibly interested in having John as a guest because he's the author of a fascinating book called Persuasion Science for Trial Lawyers. The book helps to show how persuasion science can lead to successful jury verdicts. And since there is an amazing amount of content related to the book, uh, I want to skip most of the background questions related to a trial lawyer's practice and get into the meat of the book. John, welcome to Trial Lawyer Review. Great to have you as a guest today. I appreciate you joining me. Oh, thank you. I'm looking forward to it. So I was a psychology major in undergrad, and the topic of this book is just very interesting to me. Do you have any type of psychology background or what got you interested in the science related to persuasion and decision making? Well, I started out as a psychology major uh, and was really drawn to the study of how people made decisions and formed opinions. Um, I didn't end up majoring in the subject because there was this horrible math component that I really didn't want to deal with. So uh, I went into another field. But um, uh, as a trial lawyer, uh, I've always felt that there was more to how people made decisions 
than met the eye and, and what was basically, you know, what we were told about how to be a trial lawyer. So about 10 years ago, I read a book titled How We Decide. And that's when I realized that there was actual science involved. And, uh, and the book took about 10 years of development, uh, and uh, that was the result. So was there anything you learned being a trial lawyer that sent you down the path of writing this book? I, I think you've tried from what I saw over 150 cases and 80 of them to verdict or something in that range, which is quite a lot of, of trial experience. What drew me into uh, decision science, frankly, was uh, I hate losing. Uh, and when I knew that the facts of the case practically compelled a verdict in my client's favor, uh, and the jury didn't agree, uh, that was pretty upsetting, as you can imagine. So uh, I'm pretty introspective, and I thought about all of the things I must have done wrong. Uh, the easy answer would be to say that the jurors were just stupid and didn't pay attention. Uh, but I figured maybe there was something going on here, and, and I started to read about how people made decisions. Uh, one of the things I learned that was important was that decisions that are based on so-called common sense was just a lot of times the brain's unwillingness to do the hard work of critical thinking. You know, I learned about emotions and the effect on rational thought, uh, the effect of too much information. I, I ended up reading hundreds of these peer-reviewed psychological articles uh, in psychological journals. And I was just amazed at the information. It was just there for the taking, but it just hadn't been translated so that lawyers could use it. And I was going to ask you if, if any of your research and reading in helping you formulate this book had been centered around juries and the way juries, because I mean, juries are a little bit of a different animal, but yet these principles seem like they're principles that really don't necessarily matter, whether it's a jury, it's any type of decision-making or persuasion along the lines of trying to get to the right outcome. That's absolutely right. Uh, it's focused on juries because as trial lawyers, that's our audience. But your audience uh, as a lawyer, if even if you're not a trial lawyer or if you're not trying lawsuits, uh, it might be uh, a board of directors. Uh, it may be an audience. Uh, it may be a committee. Uh, these principles apply to everyone because uh, everybody has a brain, most people, and um, uh, we have to understand how it works. And so it works for any collection of people or even one person. Yeah, I was interested, as I was telling you before we, we started um, shooting for the podcast uh, today, that you know, I do handle matters before the Division of Administrative Hearings here in Florida for Medicaid liens. And I've always, it, it's sort of a, a very narrow subject anyway, but I, I like some of these ideas. I think I can even make it more simpler and more streamlined for the ALJ to ultimately rule in favor of the injury victim because you know the goal is to get the medicaid lien reduced through these hearings so i found it interesting just these ideas and applying that in that context as well you know that's interesting jason because um, it's it's not just juries 
uh, when we're trying a case to an ALJ or if it's a bench trial, uh, some people like to think that, uh, well, the judge must be smarter than everybody and, and not plagued by biases or, um, uh, or uh, problems with uh, being able to receive a lot of information. Uh, and it's just, it's just not true. The, the judges, um, and this will come as a surprise to many of them, have human limitations. Uh, and these limitations on the ability to process information uh, applies to judges. Uh, in fact, the more you can simplify something for a hugely busy judge, the better chance you have of being persuasive. So before we get into some of the, the meat of the book, there was also a, a part of the book I wanted to ask you about. In chapter four of the book, you talk about the waste of time and money during discovery with needless and unproductive conflict. Can you talk about how flexibility gives lawyers the upper hand through that process? Because I know, you know, just from being on listservs with other lawyers, and uh, I see a lot of this uh, talk about the fights that go on in the discovery process, and it seems that there is an inordinate amount of that going on. Well, talk about unproductive use of our time. Uh, from a plaintiff's standpoint, uh, you know, every hour that you're involved in a conflict, uh, you're not able to work on your case. And if the other lawyer on the other side is working on an hourly basis, they're, they're about as happy as can be. And so you're just playing their game. Uh, one of the things I like to talk about when I talk about uh, dealing with your opponents uh, is to use an analogy of a huge rock in the middle of a stream. And the rock commands the water to halt, but the water has flexibility and flows over and around the rock. And so uh, one of the things that I've written about is be the water, not the rock. So the subtitle of that chapter uh, is where I discuss the whole idea of giving in to get your way which is taken from my martial art days when I learned that the best way to control your opponent is to use their force against them rather than trying to fight it uh, head to head. So let me give you an example. Uh, the other side demands that the deposition of their medical expert be in their expert's office and not in your office. Uh, they want to win and so you say, sure, we'll do that. And you go there, you pick up some brochures in the lobby, uh, you see a big bookcase around the expert, uh, you take out your, your uh, cell phone and you take a picture of uh, everything that's on his bookcase, and then you have the ability to cross-examine him on what's in those books. And so you've actually given in and you've gotten the advantage. So that's one of the ways of using flexibility to help your side and not get stuck in a corner by the other side. So let's get into the, the meat of the book about making sure that you are presenting information in a way that it can be digested. So I wanted to talk about the rule of three and why it's important for trial lawyers. And I, I'm, I, I'll ask the question, should a trial lawyer make their case about no more than three things? 
Well, three is what you should shoot for. You might make it four and, um, and sometimes five, but really shoot for three. And here's the reason. There's a lot of psychological research that most people can't hold a lot of things in their brains for very long. But long before psychological research on the subject, it was human experience that developed what's known as the rule of threes. What are examples of that? Like in the Bible, uh, there's um, uh, three biblical patriarchs, um, uh, three wise men, three little pigs. Let's see, Goldilocks and how many bears? Right, three. Uh, when we take an oath, it's to do three things, preserve, protect, and defend. Uh, what do we seek? Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. You see a trend here. And in my personal favorite by um, composer George Gershwin, uh, I got rhythm, I got music, I got my gal. Who could ask for anything more? <laughs> Seriously, though, um, when you pass three and get into four things, our brains start not being able to remember. So that's the importance of the three things. Well, keeping in, in line with that uh, idea, the three things. So your book is is 250 pages with a ton of helpful information. But what are three important groups of things from your book that can help trial lawyers? Okay, three things. Cognitive limitations, information rejection, and belief systems. Those are the three. All right, so let's start with the uh, first group of things, cognitive limitations. What is cognitive limitations and what is the importance of it for lawyers who are presenting information in court or outside of court? Okay. Um, people have limitations on their ability to process new information and remember what they hear. A lot of lawyers think that they need to present every little piece of evidence, thinking that more is better. Uh, but actually, it's not better, it's worse. So if you could visualize a big pitcher of water uh, on the one hand, and then a drinking glass right next to it, uh, if you think that you have to include every possible fact or argument, it's like the water that's in that pitcher. But think about the limitations of the glass. You can keep pouring from that big pitcher into the glass, but most of it's going to spill out. Jurors can't retain too much information. And so these are what are called and recognized as cognitive limitations, which means the brain has a limit on what it can absorb and has to choose what it's going to pay attention to. And so the first thing that you have to understand is that your audience has significant limitations on the amount of information that is ultimately going to end up in their heads. So um, in, in the book, um, staying with the, the theme of cognitive limitation, uh, chapter five, the science of jury education, you talk about three cognitive elements necessary for learning. How does learning science help trial lawyers better present to the jury? Well, there's those three elements again. Uh, and obviously, there's a lot more than three, but 
I try to practice what I preach. So um, let's talk about the, the learning process. Good teachers understand what's called learning science. And lawyers have to be teachers. So the three elements are, number one, understanding, number two, processing, and number three, memory. So let me break that down briefly. For something to be learned, it has to be remembered. And to be remembered, it has to first be understood and then processed. Um, it's like you can't swallow an apple whole uh, and expect your body to be able to digest it. It has to come uh, in little bites. So if lawyers don't present the facts in an easily understood manner, it never gets to the point of being processed. And then if time isn't given for processing, it isn't remembered. And the interesting thing is that once something is remembered that is committed to memory, it means it has been accepted as being true. And isn't that what we're trying to accomplish? That is, having our audience believe what we're presenting is true. So that's the science behind education, because education isn't just shoveling information. It's hopefully having your students remember what's important. So given all of that, um, what do you do in complex cases? I know you, you litigate med mal cases. Those are usually pretty complex because of the fact that you've got doctors involved in a lot of expert witnesses or a complicated product liability case where you, you may have some very complicated technical concepts. So in that complicated case with a lot of dense information, um, what can a lawyer do to make the best presentation at trial to succeed when you do have those kinds of issues present in the case? Well, there's a lot, there's a lot of different techniques, uh, but one important one is called chunking. Chunking is when you group a lot of things together under one heading. So, um, for example, chunk number one, how the dispute or accident or problem started. Chunk number two, how it happened. And chunk number three, how it ended. So you've taken a huge amount of information, you've created three chunks. And by doing that, it makes it mentally manageable. Kind of the same way that we remember uh, phone numbers. Uh, phone numbers are 10 digits. Uh, but they're not just serial numbers. There's these parentheses or, or hyphens between the numbers. So, for example, 562, 555, 1212. Those are three chunks. We might not be able to remember 10 numbers, but we can remember the three sets of numbers. Um, another important technique is what I call the outline where, and you do this in your opening statement, you do it in your witness examination, where you essentially start out and you create an outline by hitting the major points and then going back and filling in the details. 
Um, and then there's one of my favorite um, ideas that I spent, I think, an entire chapter on, and that is creating curiosity. Because once you create curiosity, like what's the answer to this question, um, the jurors, actually anybody, um, it's like an itch that has to be scratched. It will be the focus of attention. But the most important, simplify. To summarize, so you, you, you could have the theory or the question that creates curiosity is, how did the accident produce these injuries, which could get into some very technical kinds of issues. But if it ties back into that overarching question and create curiosity for the jury about, well, or medical malpractice, how did this mistake lead to, you know, the injuries suffered by the client? And there's all this testimony about that, which is very technical, very detailed, but yet ties into that one chunk and that question. Is that sort of the idea here? Um, it's sort of the idea, but the question the question technique that creates the curiosity has to be something that you spend a lot of time figuring out how to pose the question so it's not just what the issue is, but you've put it in a context where there's really only one answer. Uh, and you want the jurors to answer that question the way you've set it up. Uh, so uh, you have to lead into the question, lead into what the question's going to be, then pose it as a question rather than as a statement of fact. If you do it the right way, the jurors are going to answer the question themselves, which is a lot more effective than if you tell the jurors what the conclusion should be. And so the creation of the curiosity has to have an appropriate lead-up so that um, the answer is what I call the inescapable conclusion. Like, what did you think was going to happen? So that's sort of the art of advocacy in the end, right? In the end, it's the art of advocacy, but it's based on the science of advocacy. It's based on where the brain goes when uh, it's curious and how to create the curiosity. So it's like the art and the science. Uh, one of the first trials, might be the first trial I ever tried as a young lawyer, um, I asked um, uh, an expert, I think it was an orthopedist, um, uh, about, the, uh, about the art of medicine. And he said, well, it's an art, but you have to start with the science. Uh, it took me about 30 years to understand what he really meant. But, but that's where it comes from. You know, the art of advocacy has to be based on science. So in chapter eight, you talk about techniques to help a trialer make sure that his or her message isn't missed by the important listeners, the jury, the judge. Can you explain more about that? It has to do with converting facts into a story. Um, the world's a complex place. And for thousands of years, stories have been the way that people learn and remember things. So um, here's an example uh, of what I'm talking about uh, in creating a story. 
there was a time of gods and goddesses, and there was a goddess truth. And the goddess truth walked naked into a village to enlighten the people. But the people ignored her. She was dejected. She wandered into a forest where she met another goddess, the goddess story. And the goddess story heard what happened and said, take my cloak and go back to the village. When the goddess truth returned to the village with the cloak, the people welcomed her and listened and believed her. What's the moral? For naked truth to be accepted, it must have the cloak of story. So, why that is important is that facts by themselves aren't memorable. Stories are memorable. And when the brain, and this is where the science comes in, when the brain is focused on a story, it actually loses the ability to be skeptical and to look for reasons to dispute the facts. Um, what's a good example of this? When you're in a theater watching a movie, you're not thinking, oh, it's just a projection on a screen of people who are getting paid a lot of money to recite lines. You're drawn into the story. You aren't thinking that this isn't reality. So when you create a story out of facts, it becomes far more persuasive than simply unloading facts. Uh, that, in answer to your question, is a technique to get something complicated across to the jury that might be otherwise not remembered or not persuasive. So let's move on to the second big three group of things that you talked about, uh, information rejection. What is that? Uh, it's pretty self-defining. Uh, the brain blocks the input. The, the ears hear it, but it doesn't get processed. Uh, and there's several reasons why that happens. Uh, one is what I've talked about before, limited capacity. Um, another is mental fatigue. Um, another is um, uh, what we call um, inherent bias. Uh, so we talked about mental capacity. Um, so, so information might get rejected not because it isn't believed, but because the brain is just too tired. I mean, think about the brain as a muscle. Uh, a tired brain is not going to want to do the hard work of learning. And so if we're dealing with fatigue, the result is that the brain says, just like if you had to do, you know, 20 reps and all you can do is 10, you might say, I'm going to do 10 more. Your muscles are going to say, no, you're not. <laughs> The brain is just like that. If it gets tired, it's not going to work. Um, so in, in Chapter 10, you talk about the resistance and rejection of advocacy uh, and why information is rejected. Is there anything that we didn't just cover that we need to talk about in that regard? Yeah, there's one other thing. Um, it's called um, 
reactants. Well, there's two other things. One is reactants and the other is bias. So let me hit both of them. Reactants is what happens when you tell someone what they have to do. Uh, I mean, just think about it. If somebody told you, Jason, you have to do this. Uh, your first reaction is, no, I don't. Um, when people, jurors particularly, are told by a lawyer what they should think, like, oh, the evidence requires this result or it compels this answer, uh, there's going to be a knee-jerk reaction, a, a mental knee-jerk reaction, where they're going to say, I don't have to believe that. I don't have to do that. And so that's one reason why information gets rejected. And then, you know, the 800-pound gorilla is the bias, which is how everybody understands how the world works. And if you're trying to persuade them of something that's contrary to how they think the world works, it's just going to get rejected. So those are the big ticket items about why information is rejected. So I think that's a good segue into the last grouping, which was belief systems, because it seems like that's tied into bias, at least from my my point of view. So what does that the the belief systems have to do with the science of persuasion? Well, you're absolutely right that belief system and bias um, are nesting ideas. Uh, we are all biased to believe certain things that form the basis of how we see the world. And uh, if we consider a belief system to be like a set of principles that help us interpret what reality is, then we can understand uh, like religion, uh, political, political affiliation, or uh, maybe the way we were raised. Uh, for example, uh, you see a stranger. Should they be feared or welcomed? That might depend on your belief system. People will look for what confirms what they already believe. And you are never, ever, ever going to be able to persuade something or persuade someone of something um, if they just don't believe it as a matter of their worldview. So you, you spend four chapters talking about belief systems. How can a trial lawyer overcome differing belief systems? So can a liberal trial lawyer convince a Trump juror to help his client? Um, can you use confirmation bias to your advantage? Well, now you've used the word confirmation bias. And, um, and as you know, uh, people look for what confirms what they already believe. Um, but... Seriously, this is where you're asking me to put uh, a 10-pound ham into a 5-pound container. Um, and that's the reason that the answer is contained in four full chapters of the book. But let me talk about the Trump voter. Let me talk about uh, conservatives. Um, traditionally, conservatives believe in institutions, in the status quo. Now, there are some... Trump voters who distrust institutions. But there's other Trump voters that are more traditional and they do trust institutions. So it's not so much the Trump voter, it's 
conservatives writ large. So the short answer is that you need to learn what the values are that are most prevalent in conservatives and then frame your facts to match what those values are. Let me give you an example. Working hard, playing by the rules, those are conservative values. You should make your client match those values, that they worked hard, that they played by the rules. Also, um, conservatives are much more focused with what's called the in-group uh, as opposed to the out-group. The in-group are people like they are. The out-group are people who aren't like they are. You want to do everything you can to make your client match the in-group. So how do you do it? You have to appeal to universal values um, and you might have to make an exception so the jurors can say, yes, we believe that these kinds of people aren't trustworthy, but this party, this plaintiff or this defendant is an exception. And the biggest thing is the status quo. Conservatives love the status quo and they hate a change in the status quo. So the strongest pitch is always to make it clear that you're not changing the status quo. It was the other side that either broke the rules of the status quo or wants you to break the rule, wants them to break the rules of the status quo. Um, and so those are some of the ways that you can actually persuade people who might not think the way you do. So part of it is knowing your audience and speaking in their language. Eh, not so much, Jason. Not so much. Because on a jury, you're not going to be sure who's a conservative and who's a liberal. And so, you know, it's not like walking into an audience of cats and you know that it's a whole bunch of cats. You've, you've, you've got to deliver your message in a way that resonates with both kinds, but you can't do that if you don't understand what's important to both kinds. So trial lawyers really need to read the book and make sure they understand this and are presenting it in, in a way that hopefully gets around uh, these, these types of issues. Hopefully. So the, the book explores acts, aspects of persuasion um, that include all phases of trial. Can you give some examples of persuasion science in each aspect of trial? Sure. Uh, let's start with what we already touched on, and that's the limited resources that everybody's brain has to absorb new information. And because of that, it's important to make every part of the trial shorter and more concise. Uh, when I was a very young lawyer, I, I had designed an, an examination uh, of a witness, and I thought, gee, this isn't long enough. I better make it longer. Um, because that was kind of how we were taught. Uh, turns out it was the opposite. So we have to make it shorter. Every part of the trial has to begin with a short outline that tells the jurors what they're going to be hearing, what you're going to be covering. So in opening statement, don't just start loading the jury with facts. Start with a summary. 
and then fill in the facts. Same with witness examination. Start with an outline and then go back and fill in the details. Final argument. Focus on what the jurors already believe is true uh, and then frame it so that their beliefs are confirmed. You know, uh, it, it's, it's all based on decision science. And one thing that's important about the outline technique is that the first time that a juror or anyone hears something, the brain's trying to wrap itself around this fact. The second time that they hear it, there's some familiarity to it. And their brain says, oh, okay, I heard about this. And it's more likely that they're going to be able to process it because it's not the first time they're hearing it. So I um, deal with settlements, and that's the focus of what I do in my law firm and with Synergy. Uh, I'm curious about the applicability of all the techniques that you've talked about in the book in terms of trying to achieve the best possible settlement. Uh, I'm assuming that all of these techniques are techniques that can be used effectively in mediations or negotiation uh, and resolution of a case. It's the first part of the book, the first, I think, four chapters, talk about how to communicate with the other side, how to communicate with your client, uh, how to communicate with court personnel. Uh, and it's not focused on trial. It's focused on what m most of us uh, do with our cases. And we know that, what, about 80, 85 percent of our cases are going to be settled. And so the first part of the book isn't about the trial. It's about exactly what you were talking about. How do you create the atmosphere through communication uh, and relationships so that the other side isn't fighting you? You know, don't make demands on them. They'll react by saying, you can't tell me what to do. Don't belittle them. Don't consider them to be an enemy. And if if you approach things in that way, the likelihood of better settlements is going to go way up because if somebody hates your guts, they're not going to say, well, let's do a good thing for Jason and, and, uh, and make sure that uh, he has an easy time of uh, getting a settlement. They're going to do everything they can to make your life miserable. And so why give them the ammunition? John, there's a, a ton of helpful information in this book for trial lawyers, but um, in a nutshell, why should a trial lawyer read it? Okay, let me try to answer that with a story. In the 1800s, skilled surgeons were operating on patients, and a lot of these patients died from infection. Uh, and these surgeons figured, well, you know, I guess that's just going to happen. We can't prevent it. But it wasn't until Dr. Joseph Lister came up with the idea that infection was being caused by, because surgeons didn't understand the science of how things became infected. Now, remember, these were times when the surgeons would be downstairs in the basement using their instruments to do an autopsy. Then they'd throw their instruments in the bag and go upstairs and do surgery with the same instruments. So they didn't understand the science, but Lister did. 
So he came up with these antiseptic techniques that proved to be a game changer. And what happened? The patients stopped dying so much. So if lawyers learn the science of how decisions are made, it's going to be a game changer for them. And that's why they should read the book. Now, I know the book is available in audio format, and you actually recorded it and read it as the author. Is it better to read the book or listen to it on audiobook? I think both. And, and here's the, re the reason. Um, when you're reading, you can stop and think about it and maybe underline it or highlight it or copy it. Um, when you're listening, it's like a stream uh, and it's not stopping. I mean, you can stop the book and think about it, but if you're driving along, for example, and listening to it, it's going to be um, hard to remember it um, because you don't really have time to process it unless you're doing a lot of starting and stopping. So reading is important, but listening to it afterwards, um, particularly when you're preparing for a trial, is a really good way to trigger the memory of what you previously read. So funny thing is, uh, I've been doing it myself. Uh, I've been, I was listening to it before I started a trial recently, and I'm thinking to myself as I heard this stuff, hey, that's a pretty good idea. I should try that. <laughs> Um, and I wrote it, but it reminded me of stuff. So um, I think that both is important. Uh, and I got the publisher to offer a package deal that if you buy the book directly from the publisher and not from Amazon, then uh, for about 25 bucks, uh, they'll throw in the audio. So you'll get the book and the audio uh, at the same time. And uh, a lot of my uh, colleagues uh, who've uh, listened to the audio book um, really like it that way uh, as a reminder. We'll put in the show notes just linking to that, but how can a lawyer, if they're interested in getting that deal, where, where do they go to do that? Well, I created a website. It's called persuasion-science.com, and it's got a whole bunch of stuff about the book. It has, um, it has excerpts. It has a link to the publisher. Um, uh, it has a way to sign up for what my latest thoughts are and, uh, and stuff that I'm writing. So uh, it's, it's that website's probably the easiest way to do it. All right, we'll link to that. Uh, I'm, I'm actually in the process of editing my second book, and uh, I'm going to go back and do a, a second edition of my first book because it's becoming a little dated with some of the, some of the changes in the law recently specifically Medicaid liens with the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling uh, a couple of weeks ago in Gallardo. But um, curious about, are you working on any new books or a re-edition of your first book? I'm thinking about a second edition um, because it's funny. When I finished writing this, I thought, okay, that's, that's all. I'm done. I've now covered the subject. And what I've realized is uh, that it's not true, that there's a huge amount of more information. Uh, and so I've been continuing to write uh, the equivalent of some new chapters on, on a lot of these. Uh, it's the, the expansion of ideas that I wrote about and 
And one of the most interesting things um, that I studied recently is called fluency. Um, not fluency like being able to speak another language well, but there's this thing called fluency, which is um, how the brain accepts information that's delivered to it in a way uh, that if you do it one way, it's fluent, and the brain says, oh, I can, I can remember that, uh, I can accept that. Or something that's not fluent, where the brain says, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. And so these ideas for um, cognitive limitations and rejection of information and, and that sort of thing, um, there's a whole bunch of more information that I've been finding out about. So, yeah, I think, uh, I think I'd like to do a second edition um, after the book's been out for about a year. So um, uh, because the podcast is called The Trial Review, the, the last question I typically ask is an open-ended one. I sort of think I know where you might go with this, but what is your view as a trial lawyer? All right. Um, I thought you'd never ask. Um, what's one of the most important responsibilities that we have as lawyers? Um, is to present information so that others can make decisions. It might be our client. Um, it might be a jury. Uh, how have we learned how to do this? Uh, mostly the experience of other lawyers um, and from our own trials and errors. I call them trials and tribulations. But it's not based on how the brain works. It, it, it's really based on what seems to work for some lawyers in some situations. Oh, Keith got that big verdict. I'll do what he did. Well, that's just mimicking. It's, it's anecdotal. We don't know why it worked. It might not work for us. Uh, and, when a, and when a technique doesn't work, what, we blame stupid jurors? The whole idea of decision science is based on a huge amount of research into what influences people to make decisions. You know who uses that information? Not lawyers. Salesmen, marketers. They persuade people that they need to buy stuff that they hadn't thought about buying. They have, there are psychologists whose entire careers are made up of figuring out how to use the science of how people make decisions to get them to buy stuff. Um, lawyers can use that information for more, mo for, for more noble purposes. And I think that once lawyers understand the science of persuasion, then I think the art of persuasion will flow from it. Very well said. Uh, so if someone who's listening to the podcast today wants to get in touch with you, is interested in getting your help, buying your book, what, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Well, um, my phone number is pretty easy to find, uh, but the uh, Persuasion-Science website uh, has all kinds of ways to get in touch with me, and uh, that's probably the easiest way. Well, thanks again, John, for joining me today on Trial Law Review, and we will see everybody on the next episode. It's great to be here. Thanks for tuning in to Trial Lawyer Review. You can find more at triallawyerreview.com. 
and look for more episodes and more content coming in the future.